Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, January 10th, 2019, we feature articles on hydroxyurea in African children with sickle cell disease, endoscopic or open vein graft harvesting for cabbage, the diagnostic utility of exome sequencing in kidney disease, hybrid minimally invasive surgery for esophageal cancer, and plerixophore in the WIM syndrome, a review article on the risk of myocardial infarction after acute infection, a case report of a veteran with multiple somatic symptoms, and perspective articles on disease and famine as weapons of war in Yemen, on the anti-trans memo, on focusing on population health at scale, on evolving board certification, and on the grace of denial. Hydroxyurea for Children with Sickle Cell Anemia in Sub-Saharan Africa by Leon Shilolo from Centre Hospitalier Moncole, Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. Hydroxyurea is an effective treatment for sickle cell anemia, but few studies have been conducted in Sub-Saharan Africa, where the burden is greatest. In this study in Sub-Saharan Africa, 606 children 1 to 10 years of age with sickle cell anemia received hydroxyurea at a dose of 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day for six months, followed by dose escalation. The retention rate was 94.2% at three years of treatment. Hydroxyurea therapy led to significant increases in both the hemoglobin and fetal hemoglobin levels. Dose-limiting toxic events occurred in 5.1% of the participants, which was below the protocol-specified threshold for safety. As compared with the pre-treatment period, the rates of clinical adverse events decreased with hydroxyurea use, including rates of vasoocclusive pain, 98.3 versus 44.6 events per 100 patient years, non-malaria infection, 142.5 versus 90 events, malaria, 46.9 versus 22.9 events, transfusion, 43.3 versus 14.2 events, and death, 3.6 versus 1.1 deaths. Hydroxyurea treatment was feasible and safe in children with sickle cell anemia living in sub-Saharan Africa. Hydroxyurea use reduced the incidence of vasoocclusive events, infections, malaria, transfusions, and death, which supports the need for wider access to treatment. In an editorial, Lucio Lozado from the Muhimbili University of Health and Allied Sciences, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, writes that the burden of sickle cell disease is greatest in Africa, where it is recognized as a public health priority and where early mortality may reach 90%, especially when people live in poverty. Patients with sickle cell disease in Africa ought to have access to the most advanced methods of intervention, but this should go hand-in-hand with the availability of hydroxyurea therapy on a wide scale. To this end, a major limiting factor has been affordability. Today in a pharmacy in Tanzania, the mean price for a typical daily dose of hydroxyurea is approximately $1.20, 
not a small sum if you need it every day for a lifetime. Free health care for all is a desirable goal. Until it is attained, we need to explore new avenues for reducing prices and to do so now. For instance, local compounding of galenic hydroxyurea by qualified pharmacies or production of the drug by the local pharmaceutical industry. Another limiting factor may have been in the mind of some that there was no positive evidence that hydroxyurea therapy was safe and effective in Africa. Given this landmark article, any such doubt must be discarded. It is clear that providing hydroxyurea therapy to patients with sickle cell disease in Africa is no longer just a desirable option, but an immediately realistic obligation. Hydroxyurea should be on the list of essential medicines in all countries in Africa. Randomized trial of endoscopic or open vein graft harvesting for coronary artery bypass by Marco Zanotti from the Veterans Affairs Boston Healthcare System. The saphenous vein graft is the most common conduit for coronary artery bypass grafting, cabbage. The influence of the vein graft harvesting technique on long-term clinical outcomes has not been well characterized. In the regroup study, 1,150 patients undergoing cabbage at 16 Veterans Affairs cardiac surgery centers were randomly assigned to either open or endoscopic vein graft harvesting. Over a median follow-up of 2.78 years, the primary outcome of major adverse cardiac events, including death from any cause, non-fatal myocardial infarction, and repeat revascularization occurred in 15.5% of patients in the open harvest group and 13.9% of patients in the endoscopic harvest group. 8% of patients in the open harvest group and 6.4% of patients in the endoscopic harvest group died. Myocardial infarctions occurred in 5.9% of patients in the open harvest group and in 4.7% of patients in the endoscopic harvest group, and revascularization occurred in 6.1% and 5.4% of patients, respectively. Leg wound infections occurred in 3.1% of patients in the open harvest group and in 1.4% of patients in the endoscopic harvest group. Among patients undergoing cabbage, the investigators did not find a significant difference between open vein graft harvesting and endoscopic vein graft harvesting in the risk of major adverse cardiac events. Subodh Verma from St. Michael's Hospital, Toronto, writes in an editorial that more than 90% of cabbage procedures are performed with saphenous vein grafts. However, Two recalcitrant issues with saphenous vein grafts persist, early graft failure and harvest site complications. Traditionally, harvesting of the greater saphenous vein involves a long incision along the medial part of the lower leg or thigh. This approach is associated with significant wound complications, including infection, delayed healing, and postoperative pain, which often extend the length of stay in the hospital or result in a need for home care nursing support for wound dressing and surveillance. 
Minimally invasive endoscopic harvesting of saphenous vein grafts was introduced in the mid-1990s. Unlike open surgical harvesting, this procedure generally involves one or more small incisions, endoscopic dissection, and excision of the greater saphenous vein with or without the use of carbon dioxide insufflation. The uptake of endoscopic vein graft harvesting has been rapid, driven by substantial reductions in leg complications and by improved cosmesis and patient satisfaction. However, the use of endoscopic vein graft harvesting has also led to concerns surrounding the quality of the conduits. The regroup data should strengthen clinical practice guidelines that advocate for the use of endoscopic saphenous vein graft harvesting if it is performed by experienced surgeons or physician assistants. Although we have clarity on the open versus endoscopic question, let us not forget that much still needs to be done to improve the overall rates of vein graft patency. Diagnostic Utility of Exome Sequencing for Kidney Disease by Emily Groupman from Columbia University, New York. Exome sequencing is emerging as a first-line diagnostic method in some clinical disciplines, but its usefulness has yet to be examined for most constitutional disorders in adults, including chronic kidney disease, which affects more than 1 in 10 persons globally. In this exome sequencing study involving a diverse, largely adult combined cohort of 3,315 patients with chronic kidney disease, the investigators assessed the diagnostic yield and, among the patients for whom detailed clinical data were available, the clinical implications of diagnostic and other medically relevant findings. Diagnostic variants were detected in 9.3% of patients, encompassing 66 different monogenic disorders. Of the disorders detected, 59% were found in only a single patient. Diagnostic variants were detected across all clinically defined categories, including congenital or cystic renal disease, 23.9% of patients, and nephropathy of unknown origin. 17.1%. Of the 2,187 patients assessed, 1.6% had genetic findings for medically actionable disorders that, although unrelated to their nephropathy, would also lead to subspecialty referral and inform renal management. Exome sequencing in a combined cohort of more than 3,000 patients with chronic kidney disease yielded a genetic diagnosis in just under 10% of cases. Hybrid Minimally Invasive Esophagectomy for Esophageal Cancer by Christophe Mariette from the Claude Urie University Hospital, Lille, France. Postoperative complications, especially pulmonary complications, affect more than half the patients who undergo open esophagectomy for esophageal cancer. Whether hybrid minimally invasive esophagectomy results in lower morbidity than open esophagectomy is unclear. In this randomized trial, 207 patients with resectable cancer of the middle or lower third of the esophagus were randomly assigned to undergo transthoracic open esophagectomy or hybrid minimally invasive esophagectomy. 
a total of 312 serious adverse events were recorded in 110 patients. 36% of patients in the hybrid procedure group had a major intraoperative or postoperative complication, as compared with 64% in the open procedure group. 18% of patients in the hybrid procedure group had a major pulmonary complication, as compared with 30% in the open procedure group. At three years, overall survival was 67% in the hybrid procedure group, as compared with 55% in the open procedure group. Disease-free survival was 57% and 48%, respectively. These authors found that hybrid minimally invasive esophagectomy resulted in a lower incidence of intraoperative and postoperative major complications, specifically pulmonary complications, than open esophagectomy, without compromising overall and disease-free survival over a period of three years. Plerixophore for the Treatment of WIM Syndrome by David McDermott from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Bethesda, Maryland. WIM syndrome, warts, hypogammaglobulinemia, infections, and myelocathexis, a primary immunodeficiency disorder involving panleukopenia, is caused by autosomal dominant gain-of-function mutations in CXC chemokine receptor 4, CXCR4. Myelocathexis is neutropenia caused by neutrophil retention in bone marrow. Patients with WIM syndrome are often treated with granulocyte colony stimulating factor, GCSF, which can increase neutrophil counts but does not affect cytopenias other than neutropenia. In this investigator-initiated open-label study, three severely affected patients with WIM syndrome who could not receive GCSF were treated with low-dose plerixifor, a CXCR4 antagonist, for 19 to 52 months. Myelofibrosis, panleukopenia, anemia, and thrombocytopenia were ameliorated. The wart burden and frequency of infection declined. Human papillomavirus-associated oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma stabilized, and quality of life improved markedly. Adverse events were mainly infections attributable to the underlying immunodeficiency. One patient died from complications of elective reconstructive surgery. Acute Infection and Myocardial Infarction a review article by Daniel Musher from the Michael E. DeBakey Veterans Affairs Medical Center, Houston. An increase in the short-term risk of myocardial infarction has been described in association with influenza, pneumonia, acute bronchitis, and other chest infections. A recent study showed an increase in the risk of myocardial infarction during the week after laboratory-confirmed infection with influenza virus, respiratory syncytial virus, or other respiratory viruses, to a risk that was six, four, and three times higher, respectively, than the risk during the year before or after the onset of infection. The association between acute infections and an increased risk of myocardial infarction persists beyond the short-term post-infection period. 
Among patients with mild respiratory infection or urinary tract infection, the risk of myocardial infarction returns to baseline within a few months after resolution of the infection. Among patients with pneumonia, the risk also decreases with time, but still exceeds the baseline risk up to 10 years after the infection. The increase in the risk of myocardial infarction, both in the short term and the long term, is more pronounced when the infection is more severe. The strength and temporal pattern of the association between acute infections and an increased risk of myocardial infarction suggest a causal relationship. The authors review the evidence that acute bacterial and viral infections are associated with an increased risk of myocardial infarction in the short, intermediate, and long term, and they then discuss mechanisms that might explain this association. A 34-year-old veteran with multiple somatic symptoms, a case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Abigail Donovan and colleagues. A 34-year-old male war veteran was evaluated for headaches, cognitive changes, mood symptoms, flashbacks, chest pain, arm tingling, and gastrointestinal symptoms. The patient had served three tours of duty in Operation Iraqi Freedom as a special operations combat medic, during which time he had had two traumatic head injuries and witnessed multiple traumatic events. After his third deployment ended, his wife noticed that he placed kitchen items in the wrong location, became lost while grocery shopping, and was unable to recall the birth of his first daughter. The patient expressed difficulty adjusting to a post-deployment routine, which included childcare. He rarely left the house, had difficulty connecting with his family, communicating, and performing activities that required organization skills, such as cooking and shopping. At current evaluation, examination and laboratory testing were unrevealing. Post-traumatic stress disorder is present in 13 to 17 percent of veterans who served in Operation Iraqi Freedom or Operation Enduring Freedom. PTSD occurs after exposure to a traumatic event and is characterized by re-experiencing of the event, often with physiologic reactions to trauma cues, avoidance of trauma-related thoughts and external reminders, negative alterations in cognition or mood, and hyperarousal. A key component of this patient's treatment was completion of 12 weekly 90-minute sessions of prolonged exposure therapy. Disease and Famine as Weapons of War in Yemen A Perspective Article by Amir Mohareb from Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston The infliction of suffering in the war in Yemen has particularly toxic characteristics that demand attention from healthcare providers worldwide. The destruction of healthcare facilities and the spread of disease and hunger as apparent means of waging war. Yemen was beset with widespread poverty and an ailing healthcare system when this conflict began. Most health indicators ranked in the bottom quartile of the world, with 1 in 25 children not surviving to the age of 5. 
In March 2015, after the Houthis, a faction based in the north of the country, took over Sana'a, the capital city, a coalition led by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and supported by the United States, the United Kingdom, and France, launched airstrikes in the country to overturn the Houthis. In more than three years of airstrikes, Yemeni hospitals and clinics have continued to be destroyed, both indiscriminately and sometimes apparently deliberately. With access to health care almost entirely eliminated owing to bombings and blockades, infections have spread as, at best, indirect and at worst, direct weapons of war. The war has been characterized by a violation of medical neutrality, the principles and laws protecting healthcare workers and hospitals from being targets in conflict. When healthcare facilities and the movement of healthcare workers are consistently the casualties of a war, condemnation from medical and public health communities around the world should follow. The anti trans memo. Abandoning Doctors and Patients, a perspective article by Jocelyn Samuels from the University of California, Los Angeles. In October, the New York Times reported on an effort by the Department of Health and Human Services to redefine gender as a biological immutable condition determined by a person's genitalia at birth. The proposed redefinition would have damaging repercussions for vulnerable communities that have faced discrimination from health care providers, hospitals, and insurers. Consider the case of a transgender teenager from Southern California who was battling severe depression, including suicidal ideation and self-harming behaviors. In 2015, the young man was admitted for inpatient care at a hospital's adolescent psychiatric center, where his mother made clear to hospital staff that he was a transgender boy who needed to be treated as a boy. In fact, his medical records reflected his legal name and gender change. Nevertheless, staff at the hospital repeatedly harassed and humiliated him, including by using feminine pronouns and telling him that he was such a pretty girl. Such treatment is distressing for many patients, but it is particularly harmful to a young person already in crisis. Moreover, hospital personnel blocked the boy's mother's phone number when she called to share her son's reports of harassment. In addition, the boy's doctors discharged him early because of the staff's conduct. Five weeks later, the boy died by suicide. This tragedy is far from an isolated case. It is the responsibility of HHS to help providers to make the right decisions and avoid needless lawsuits, not to send mixed signals that will harm patients and lead to more litigation. Focusing on population health at scale, joining policy and technology to improve health, a perspective article by Aaron McKethan from the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, Raleigh. America's safety net of government and community-based programs includes the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, WIC, the Housing Choice Voucher Program, Section 8, and many others. 
These programs have the potential to improve health and reduce unnecessary spending by addressing many of the non-medical factors that influence health. However, much work remains to be done. A telling example comes from North Carolina. In 2017, North Carolina Medicaid covered prenatal and delivery services for 58,159 births, nearly half, 48.4%, of the total births in the state. Yet 31% of these births were to mothers not enrolled in WIC, despite similar income eligibility criteria. Since WIC provides nutritional support from the prenatal period through five years of age and has been shown to improve participants' health, this mismatch risks undermining the benefits of the prenatal, labor and delivery, and pediatric care that Medicaid supports. Moving from establishing pilot programs to addressing these issues at scale presents major challenges. Addressing all the factors that affect health will require new ways of thinking, collaboration, and accountability on the part of both healthcare and government leaders. These authors suggest three considerations for advancing broader, sustainable initiatives. Evolving Board Certification Glimpses of Success, a perspective article by Alex Macario from the American Board of Anesthesiology, Raleigh, North Carolina. Physicians are busier than ever. The complexity of patient care has increased. Patient expectations have evolved. Production pressure is substantial. Administrative burden is high. Time is limited. And yet everyone is somehow expected to balance personal and professional responsibilities. Although physicians are generally committed to their professional responsibility to continuously improve their abilities, errors in decision-making are commonplace, and physician performance is variable. These authors believe a key to overcoming these interconnected challenges is to create lifelong learning experiences that promote self-awareness and leverage principles of adult learning to provide the skills, competencies, and intellectual fulfillment that help physicians practice to the best of their abilities. Educators and certifying boards are working to integrate physician education and assessment. In one program, the American Board of Anesthesiology, ABA, and the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education have linked assessment with CME opportunities. The MOCA Minute enables anesthesiologists to identify their scope of practice and answer 30 practice-relevant multiple-choice questions per calendar quarter to continually assess their knowledge and problem-solving skills. The ABA provides immediate and specific feedback for each question answered. The Grace of Denial a perspective article by Heather Scher from North Broward Radiologists, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Dr. Scher sat listening to the case presentation about a woman who waited far too long to seek care for advanced breast cancer. By the time she presented for medical evaluation, her right breast was twice the size of her left and hung like a misshapen butternut squash hidden under her blouse. The physical exam revealed that the tumor was breaking down her skin, which was ulcerated and excoriated, with the orange peel texture common in advanced breast cancer. 
Dr. Scher listened quietly to the familiar conversation among the surgeons, oncologists, radiation oncologists, and presenting medical student. The wonder-why-she-waited-so-long commentary was inevitable. The what-a-shame discussion followed. But Dr. Scher is well-versed in the concept of patient's denial in the face of a devastating diagnosis. When Dr. Scher's father was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, she vigorously researched alternative diagnoses in the medical school library. She made a case to her father's neurologist that his weakness was not a symptom of ALS, but was a rare neurologic manifestation of Lyme disease. But over the course of the next year, her father went from a jovial athletic man to a quadriplegic. When Dr. Scher sees patients who cannot face the prospect of a terrible diagnosis, she understands their delay. Denial allowed her family six months of relative peace before things became unbearable. They had a few extra months with her father without the constant awareness that his death was imminent. Our Images in Clinical Medicine features a 32-year-old man who presented to the emergency department with difficulty swallowing oral secretions and the feeling that food was stuck in his throat after he ate a pizza roll. The patient reported that similar episodes had occurred previously, but in each instance the feeling resolved spontaneously. At the time of presentation, the patient was drooling. Upper endoscopy revealed impacted food material and prominent mucosal rings extending 20 centimeters from the incisors to the level of the gastroesophageal junction, with two discrete areas of narrowing and associated linear furrows. Biopsy specimens were obtained, and esophagitis was observed, with more than 40 eosinophils per high-power field. An endoscopic finding of fixed esophageal rings, or tracheolization, is suggestive of eosinophilic esophagitis, although a definitive diagnosis is made on the basis of clinical presentation, histologic findings, and the exclusion of other causes of esophageal eosinophilia, such as proton pump inhibitor-responsive esophageal eosinophilia. The patient was treated with an eight-week course of omeprazole but there was no symptom resolution or histologic improvement on repeat endoscopic biopsies. He was started on an eight-week course of both swallowed fluticasone and a six-food elimination diet, elimination of the six most commonly identified types of allergenic food, wheat, milk, soy, nuts, eggs, and seafood. At a one-year follow-up visit, the patient reported no further symptoms of food impaction. A two-week-old baby girl with a three-day history of purulent discharge from both eyes was brought by her parents to the ophthalmology clinic. The baby had been born at full term by means of spontaneous vaginal delivery. She had not received ocular prophylaxis after delivery, and the mother had not undergone prenatal testing for chlamydia or gonorrhea infection. An eye discharge sample obtained from the baby and an endocervical swab obtained from the mother tested positive for chlamydia trachomatis DNA and negative for Neisseria gonorrhea DNA by PCR.
Perinatal transmission of C. trachomatis or N. gonorrhea can result in neonatal conjunctivitis, known as ophthalmia neonatorum. The ongoing incidence of ophthalmia neonatorum caused by C. trachomatis or N. gonorrhea can be addressed by routine maternal prenatal screening for and treatment of sexually transmitted infections and by postpartum neonatal ocular prophylaxis against N. gonorrhea. In addition to treatment of the baby, which included a two-week course of oral erythromycin, a single dose of oral azithromycin was given to each parent. The baby's symptoms resolved within five days after the initiation of treatment. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our audio summaries. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.